Good evening. Welcome to another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. I will let folks come into this room. And I hope you're all doing well. It's a late evening over here. I'll probably be on for one hour or so. I've been streaming on YouTube at this time. But that just wasn't possible tonight. Uh, I just did not have it in me. And so I thought I would come on call in and talk directly to you all. And I would love to have a conversation with all of you. I'll, I'll, I'll go over a brief analysis of what I was just thinking about for today's episode. But uh, you all can definitely start getting into the queue because I do not plan on doing that for very long. I have probably until at the latest 10.30 Eastern time. So definitely want to prioritize conversations with all of you. If you have any questions, something is going on that you'd like to ask me about, my thoughts or or what have you, uh, please do uh, get in the queue. But I wanted to just begin by talking about first... It's a, a week ago marked the one-year anniversary of the U.S.'s so-called withdrawal. I call it a so-called withdrawal, and I have a, I'm, I'm from Boston. I have a hard time saying words like withdrawal. <laughs> but the United States, uh, Joe Biden, uh, had a haphazard so-called withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, last year on August 15th, and... There was a lot of, or at least there was some talk about the one-year anniversary, its significance. There was some talk uh, on the left reminding uh, us about the legacy of the United States in Afghanistan, what that whole uh, circus event, that disastrous event uh, was like, and then what have been the consequences ever since then. And then another thing happened that I thought was very related because I think one part of Cold War Brew that I find important is that this podcast, if anything, should be just, I would hope, a concise, I know we sometimes talk for more than an hour, but I hope a concise kind of primer on how to differentiate and define terms so they don't lose meaning. So what I mean by that is when you hear the mainstream Western corporate media talk about imperialism and then label China and Russia as such, that it's important to have resources that can explain, well, what is imperialism and what is is China and Russia imperialist? Does the Western corporate media have any right to be calling anyone else imperialism? Uh, do they have any back, backing or basis or factual, uh, you know, evidence to back up their claims? Especially given that Western corporate media serves imperialism themselves. So, uh, basically, I wanted to talk about something else that happened this week, which was so. Uh, several months ago, I believe it was almost six months ago now, uh, the uh, China Africa, the Forum on China African Africa Cooperation or FOCAC met, and uh, there was a conference call that happened this week between the Foreign Ministry of China and uh, various uh, envoys and diplomats and representatives of the African Union. And they meant to do a follow-up. They met to do a follow-up. It's called the coordinators meeting on the implementation of follow-up actions for the 8th FOCAC conference. So in that, there was an announcement. Okay, So there was an announcement from China about how you know how how China would follow up on the commitments and principles stated during that last conference, and and I think what was announced is a, a very much. Um, did I make so, Rudy? You are in the speaker queue. Maybe I did that on my own by accident, but I'm going to remove you. You can call in um, if you do have a comment. Maybe that was on me. But I wanted to just talk about what they announced, what it means, and what's the difference with between the U.S.'s legacy 
in Afghanistan versus China's legacy in Africa or what what is being built up to be a legacy. So first, uh, the United States. So I don't want to, we can get into, and I'm going to have an article on Black Agenda Report about the overall overarching legacy of U.S. imperialism in Afghanistan. And uh, I mainly cover the two-decade-long formal occupation, and the numbers speak for themselves. We're talking about over 40,000 civilians killed, nearly 100,000 total people in Afghanistan killed. They say more than 50,000 so-called, quote-unquote, militants or opposition fighters in a war of occupation where the Taliban represented the only force organized enough to be leading the resistance to U.S. occupation. Um, The Taliban ended up taking on that leadership role. And so a lot of ordinary people joined in the armed fight, the armed struggle. So I always make that point because when you hear, oh, here's, you know, 20,000 more militants or opposition fighters killed than civilians, it could look like, well, at least the United States was killing all these terrorists or whatnot. But the reality is, is that there's just want, there's just a massive amount of killing that happened in Afghanistan. The United States militarily occupied Afghanistan and then killed nearly 100,000 Afghan people in Afghanistan that we know of because the U.S. military is incredibly unhelpful, if not downright negligent and uh, within its own interest to be, it it doesn't count uh, the casualties of its wars. It really doesn't. So we're talking about a whole lot more. And then we have another 50 plus thousand people in Pakistan who died during the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. Go figure, because the United States conducted a lot of military operations there as well. So there's that part, the civilian casualties. And of course, Afghanistan's economy was destroyed, infrastructure destroyed, water systems, institutions of all kinds, absolutely leveled, right? So Afghanistan became, despite literally sitting on trillions of dollars of mineral wealth, became one of the poorest countries in the world because of the U.S. occupation. So there's that, right? Destabilization economically, politically, of course. We know of all the corruption of the U.S.-backed occupation regime there and how the Taliban was really able to build up significant legitimacy because of how the United States conducted itself in propping up really neo-colonial puppeteers who looted and plundered Afghanistan on behalf of their U.S. and NATO masters. So that's the overall kind of what happened in Afghanistan during the occupation. But during the formal withdrawal, what happened? Well, the United States committed more war crimes. On the one hand, you had dozens of civilians killed during that haphazard, extremely what a lot of the liberals are saying, it's so rushed, it's so rushed. The point of the matter is, is that the United States had no intention of leaving Afghanistan until they felt they absolutely had to, and they decided to go out shooting. And, uh, of course, the most notable case of this was the drone strike that killed 12 people, or I think it was 10 people, 10 people in Afghanistan, and seven of them were children. So the United States left as it came in, a war criminal. And it left also thousands of special operations forces, private contractor forces, aka mercenaries, as well as intelligence uh, forces. So, so essentially, the United States is still there. And as I say in my article, the uh, uh, Anwar, um, uh, uh, what's his name, the the Al Qaeda leader who was killed. Um, uh, he um, he was killed by a U.S. drone strike, right? So obviously, Zawiri. There he goes, Zawiri. Okay, yes, um, yeah, he was killed. Ayman Al Zawiri was killed by. Thank you so much. Cut the Pentagon. Um, was killed by U.S. drone strike, right? So you know the United States is still there. The war hasn't ended. But here's a key thing that I think is really important. So. Imperialism is about militarism. 
It is. But imperialism is not just about militarism. Imperialism is an economic system. It's a stage of capitalism, of global capitalism, whereby monopoly and finance capital reign supreme. And those forces, right, monopolists, bankers, financiers, Wall Street, right, these forces that represent kind of the apex of uh, private profit and the exploitation of uh, workers, uh, these forces require endless militarism and the division of the world in their interests so that they can gobble up all the market share and continue on the path of further concentration of capital. That is really what imperialism is in brief. Of course, there are many different components to it. But the fact of the matter is, what's so interesting, and you should note this, is that we can see quite clearly how the United States is weaponizing uh, economics, right? Conducting economic warfare to get a real comparison on the differences about how imperialism behaves and what imperialism looks like and what it is really versus what it when what it isn't, right? And so the United States left Afghanistan, so-called, right, uh, last year. And immediately, what did the United States do? It seized $7 billion of Afghanistan's assets from its central bank and foreign currency reserves and essentially bankrupted the country, plundered the country. That's a lot of money for a country that already is severely poor and already was struggling economically because of the carnage that the U.S. had wrought. And the United States took $7 billion and then allowed NATO countries, right, the coalition that they had in Afghanistan, to take $2.5 billion more. So really almost $10 billion of Afghanistan's assets were seized, were stolen, were stripped, were plundered from the country. And on the one-year anniversary, Joe Biden announced that this money, his administration announced that this money would never come back to Afghanistan because it wouldn't, quote-unquote, uh, it wouldn't be managed, quote-unquote, responsibly. So this is what imperialism is. It's about domination. It's about controlling and expanding market share. It's about being able to dominate other countries so that their economies, their militaries, their their uh, governments are all subservient to uh, U.S. capital. And that's what they're doing to Afghanistan. They're starving Afghanistan. The consequences have been devastating. What has happened in the last year is that we've had tens, we've had thousands upon thousands, probably an undercount of newborn babies dying of malnutrition because not only are these assets unavailable, but the U.S. also has sanctions now on Afghanistan. So sanctioning Afghanistan for having the government be controlled by the Taliban and seizing assets have has left Afghanistan and its people completely and utterly impoverished. So more than 40% of the country has lost all income. Uh, 80% of children go to bed hungry. 97% of families are unable to provide enough food. I mean, this is this is starvation. This is imposed starvation. So that that really gets gives you an idea, right? What can a country like Afghanistan do in that position? It can't do much, and that leaves it very vulnerable to penetration economically and militarily. Once again, to try to foster a neo-colonial relationship with Afghanistan under new conditions. That's what the United States and its allies are hoping for in Afghanistan. And of course, with the new Cold War, it is about keeping Russia and China away, especially China, which Afghanistan is a key, would be a key part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And China has already made many overtures saying that relations are going to get closer, right? That these, that, 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 Afghanistan and China are going to work together in the future. So, and in the present. So, I mean, you have all these factors, right? You have the lithium, you have the minerals that Afghanistan sits atop of. CNN covered this way well before the United States got out, saying 
that this is what the Taliban sits on top of now. And uh, that's what imperialism is. It's about dividing up the world, conquering. It's about imposing will and power and domination, especially economically and militarily, over another country in order to satisfy the imperialists, which isn't just a military. Imperialists are monopolists. They are the mega corporations. They are the financial institutions, the huge banks and hedge funds, etc., that all want to get a um, to get a cut of what Afghanistan has to offer. And so China and Africa, okay, oh, that's been often called imperialism, right? China has been called an imperialist country for merely having relations with African countries. Before I get to the callers, I want to. I want to go over just briefly a story that was uh, released uh, after the announcement of uh, the uh, China-Africa forum on China-Africa relations, the follow-up. And China, even Australian media was talking about this, uh, the China has announced debt for 17 African countries. So 23 interest-free loans for 17 African countries will be forgiven. Uh, and and food assistance and other things will also be provided. So what's interesting about this is that you never hear about the Western bondholders, the, the lenders, both private corporations and monopolies and uh, banks. They provide loans to countries, to governments, and as well as the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And the Bretton Woods institutions also do this, but the majority of debt held by Africa, what, what, you know, the vast majority, I think about 10% of African countries, 10% of all debt that African countries hold is, is Chinese. In China, the rest of it is Western. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is not imperialism. Right there, there is something. There is something to be said about the difference between what it means to um, to practice imperialism, to impose imperialism on other countries, like Afghanistan, how the United States is doing, what the United States is doing there, versus how China is relating to Africa. Because I mean, it's incredible that China has, on a on this one time basis, announced that it's going to forgive uh, a massive amount of, of debt, right? 23, we're talking about uh, 23 interest-free loans for 17 African countries. Uh, I believe that's going to um, amount to several billion dollars, right, forgiven. But this isn't the first time that China has done this. This isn't like a historical anomaly. It's not, oh, it's the one time. No. Actually, uh, back in, earlier last year, uh, John Hopkins University came out with a study from the China-Africa workshop that they have, and they went over, they documented 16 cases of debt restructuring worth $7.5 billion U.S. dollars in 10 African countries that China um, uh, uh, wrote off between 2000 uh, and 2019. So... Um, China also forgave accumulated arrears of at least of at least 94 interest-free loans, accounting for over 3.4 billion dollars. So restructured 7.5 billion, completely forgiven 3.4 billion. So that was over the course of about two decades, 2000 to 2019, and of course those significant numbers because China's share of Africa's overall debt portfolio. Is, is not as large as Western lenders. So, I mean, the difference couldn't be more profound. But it's deeper than just forgiving debt. Uh, also uh, promised, right, um, and here's a direct quote, and I just want to talk about how significant this quote is from the foreign minister of China, Wang Yi. He said, quote, we will also continue to increase imports from Africa, support the greater development of Africa's agriculture and manufacturing sectors, and expand cooperation in emerging industries such as digital economy, health, green, and low-carbon sectors. 
providing food assistance to the 17 African countries whose loans are going to be forgiven. So I want to just say that imperialism does not increase imports from African, from uh, countries that are being subjected to imperialism. That's the opposite relationship, right? That's an inverse of the imperialist relationship. Generally, how it works is that raw materials, uh, mono-agriculture, mono-cultural development, um, you know, plundering African countries for its cobalt, for their cobalt, for their iron, for their uh, what oil, etc., Generally, how it works is that these countries are forced to provide and extract natural resources at a low level of development to the imperialist countries so that they or to wherever they are going to manufacture these things, right? Manufacture products, whatever it is, uh, phones, whatever. So these raw materials are going out, right? And we're talking about the hundreds of billions of dollars going out. They're produced elsewhere, sometimes in the imperialist mother country, quote-unquote, sometimes in a different part of the supply chain, in another country that may be also super exploited by imperialism. Then the product is produced, and then it is sold around the world, but generally in the higher-income countries where they can actually be purchased. Then the excess is often dumped right is often dumped into the countries at extremely high prices that oftentimes the governments fork over in the form of debt and then that leads to an extreme amount of debt which then leads to austerity and the willingness to cut social services and public services etc so that um, they can satisfy bondholders uh, lenders etc that's usually the imperialist relationship, and that's what keeps the wealthiest countries in the world, many of which reside in Africa, right, resource-rich countries, so poor. That's how it. That's real debt trap. Uh, I don't even call it diplomacy because I think that's an insult on the word. But that's what a real debt trap is, and China's not doing that, right? Even just that, we will continue to increase imports, which is very significant. China does import many goods from Africa. What it does is China pours resources into African financial institutions, helps develop certain kinds of infrastructure, which will then boost manufacturing. And then China says, okay, we will now purchase these things at fair market value so that you can continue to grow these industries and perhaps diversify even more, which helps the country even more, right? That's, that's the opposite of imperialism. I just wanted to make that distinction. I didn't want to go for a long time on this. But, right, we always hear China is in Africa. It's so nefarious. And look, not everything is perfect. Relationships are not perfect. But, right, one of the things that was found in that study I mentioned from John Hopkins University is that they found no evidence of a so-called debt trap Right? They found no evidence of, let's say, infrastructure being built or, or uh, infrastructure not being able to be built and then China seizes it. Right, that They found no evidence of that, contrary to what you hear in the Western media. And it's all a distraction. That's what a lot of the new Cold War, while there is a geopolitical, of course, and there are imperialist ambitions at the top, of course, the containment of China and, of course, Russia, the overthrow of those countries, their governments, is number one priority, yes. But... Right In the absence of the possibility of that, there are many other priorities in this new Cold War. And one of them is to help uh, cement the notion that there is a boogeyman, that there is a, there are countries out there doing worse than the United States. And that completely whitewashes the actual war crimes and the actual imperialist crimes that the United States is committing in places like Afghanistan, the immense suffering. Think about this. In the first two months of 2022, 13,000 newborn babies were said to have died of complications due to malnutrition and other uh, ailments and treatable diseases in Afghanistan. And many believe that it's because of the sanctions and the theft of the uh, assets 
by the United States that caused this, that caused this massive increase. I haven't been able to find if there was a number before that, um, but this number, 13,000, I mean, just staggering, a staggering number, right? That That's blood on Joe Biden's hands. That is what imperialism is. So I don't want to uh, belabor this point. I just wanted to make a quick and brief point on this. I have three people in the queue, so I'm going to get to them. Um, I think I'm going to get to them in reverse order. So I'm sorry if you were the first to have called. I don't know who you... Um, but I'm going to get to pet, uh, Peta, Peta first, and then I'll go uh, that direction. You are now in the queue. Hi, Danny. Hello. Okay, so um, I wanted to ask you, um, is there anything that we can read in particular on um, China's sort of policy towards Africa and, and, like, anything that could help dismantle or, like, like debunk the, you know, like, China is, like, imperialist or uh, anything that we anyone can read on that or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, there is actually a great... I'm sorry, do you have anything else that you'd like to add before I answer? Um, uh, well, just, like, in general, like, is there anything we could read on, like, you know, if China is imperialist, is it, is it not? You know, like, I kind of believe that it isn't, but is there anything we could read just in general on, on that subject. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, on that specific subject, uh, you know, that, that I have not seen that uh, addressed. I mean, I, I address it in various ways in my articles and streams, but I would say that I have not seen – I've seen is Russia imperialist articles and analyses. I haven't seen so much China. But what I will suggest, uh, because I think the imperialism – because there's no argument that can be made about militarism, right? Because China is just not – doesn't have that kind of footprint. There's one base that was requested from the country of Djibouti in the, the Horn of Africa, Um it's not an offensive base. It's one of cooperation between those two countries. And, um, you know, it's all about protecting basically Belt and Road, like, you know, Belt and Road and other kind of initiatives um, because of the horn, unfortunately, with Somalia situation, et cetera, is very, very challenging. But no other military bases and no other kind of activities in any part of the world, not even in the so-called South China Sea, which is China's sovereign territory, a lot of it, uh, not, uh, no, um, you know, no example of that. So usually, you know, that's, that's hard to write anything of incredible substance. What I really like is that there's been, there has been extensive work on, China's financial and economic relationship with Africa. And I would suggest a book by Deborah Brottingham, who is at John Hopkins. And uh, she, you know, she's a political scientist. She's a part of this China Africa research initiative, which unfortunately has had its ups and downs. But I would say she is a big up. I know that they have some, it's John Hopkins, guys. (laughs) They do have um they do have some problems um so it really is her i think that is a really bright spot where she has gone over and she wrote this great bit book all the way back in 2009 called the dragon get dragon's gift the real story of china and africa that i would highly suggest i've read it I think it's very convincing, and this is the early stages of a lot of China's um, robust cooperation with Africa. And she's written a lot of follow-ups on that, including a really good article uh, in the Washington Post debunking debt trap diplomacy. So I would suggest her, uh, Deborah Brotagam. I'm going to put her. I'll put her in the um, in the chat. Okay, I'm going to spell her name because I can't even pronounce it. 
It's Brodigam. Uh, I think I spelled it correctly. So I put it in the chat. And uh, I would say, um, yeah, I would say look at that. I would say look at her work on Dead Trap Diplomacy. And, you know, I think all of her work does a really good job of showing how China's economic relations are actually really win-win and, and mutually beneficial. And that a lot of the problems that occur within them happen to be just because of development issues and um, issues that are really, I mean, she doesn't make this conclusion so much, but in my opinion, everything that she was talking about in terms of the problems that have occurred, a lot of them have to do with the condition that African countries have been put into due to actual imperialism. Um, So, you know, um, so that's off the top of my head. Um, And, you know, uh, uh, certainly I I can try to, you know, I know that you're regular um, at my streams and stuff. There are other things I've written about and cited, uh, but that's what comes up uh, first. Okay. Um, So, Okay, I'm going to get to the other couple. There's uh, a couple of the call up. Oh, it looks like Sele. Um, are you still there? Well, if you want to come back, Sele, uh, please do. I'm going to get Rudy here. So, Rudy, you are now the next caller. Hey, Danny, how you doing? Still doing some good work. <laughs> thanks. Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good, man. Um, thanks for covering this. I think um, it's important i think it's going to be even more important the continent of africa is you know as things are heat up um i think one thing that we got to be sort of clear about is that africa does not need our protection you know we don't the, the african continent does not need american saviors um we've done enough um, the best thing that we could do is to probably leave just like in Afghanistan, you know. Um, but the Africans are doing much better now that, you know, uh, they're dealing with the Chinese. And the thing is, if the Africans would do even better, right? So if we wanted to really empower the Africans in their trade deals with the Chinese, we could actually, you know... Um, table some offers besides coups and, you know, bad things. But our issue is all we got to offer is weapons and war and, you know, things that African people, like any normal people, don't like. Um, and the Chinese are just, they're winning contracts. The thing is, like, we designed the system. And we're losing. It, it's not the Chinese that came to us and said, hey, you know, build, have your infrastructure be like transferred to China. We decided to do this. We decided to even have this sort of world of um, countries acting like animals where the, the fittest decides whatever. Well, China is the fittest now. So, like, what do we got? What do we got to complain about? You know, mm. it, it's it's crazy, Danny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. And you make a point about um, the United States having nothing to offer but weapons and militarization. I mean, that's exactly what's happened all across the African continent. Um, There has just been an incredible amount of militarization. I covered on my show on YouTube, The Left Lens, about how just... You know, within the last week, the United States has killed 13, they say militants, right? They say militants in Somalia, but they're they're bombing Somalia again after Joe Biden ended Donald Trump's order to keep uh, U.S. special forces and troops out of Somalia. They've sent them back in the hundreds, and now they're doing military operations. So uh, this militarization is exactly all that can be offered, and uh, yeah, Africa does not need U.S. saviors. That's for sure. Doesn't need the United States. First of all, the United States doesn't have the capacity to even stabilize 
its oppressive arrangements, right? So not only is its relationship neocolonial and imperialist with countries around the world, but it doesn't even have the ability to offer any semblance of stability. Look at anywhere the United States has been or continues to meddle in over the last 10 years alone, right? Ever since this pivot to Asia, ever since uh, the destruction of Libya and the uh, attempted regime change in Syria, and look anywhere around the world since these uh, uh, interventions, since these wars, and you won't find one example of stability. I did, before I get to the next callers, though, um, I forgot my comrade and colleague, Carlos Martinez, uh, wrote about, is China imperialist? So I want to share that link with all of you because I think it's a, a really good um, I think it's a really good summary of I, what I think are the better arguments as to how to counter this. So I'm going to share that link really quick and then get to the next few callers here. So let me put that in the chat. Thanks for uh, jogging my memory, everyone. So there it is. All right. It's in the chat now. So read that <laughs> after the show. All right. Um, so I have a couple of calls. I'm going to get Sele first because I know that they were in the chat. Or in the, and then I'll get to Fahim. Okay. So Sele, you were in the uh, you were in the calling booth. Hi. Hi. Uh, no, I just wanted to comment on what you were saying because <laughs> that's, I mean, there is what you say. But there is also a more soft, continued imperialism that is not only done by by the U.S., but I think the British and others mm -hmm. in in Europe are also not maybe in the same scale, but are also very guilty of. I mean, the mm -hmm. British have still colonies and. There's this island that I always mention, Diego Garcia, uh, that is is the British. Uh, it was colonized by the British. The people was taken out. There's there they were relocated in Mauritius, and they cannot come back because the island is being rented by the U.S. for a military base, mm. and they've been advocating for this for a long time, and and they're just outside of their homes. I mean, it's it's absurd. It's not as bad. Nothing is as bad as what's going on in Afghanistan, I think, because mm. the devastation is terrible. But uh, yes, it's not just that. And the and in Latin America, the, the economic uh, intervention is constant. It, mm. it doesn't stop. And it's came to a, a time when it's kind of ridiculous. There's these two letters that um, were published that were from the, because apparently they don't agree anymore, uh, from the Republic, one from 12 senators of the Republican Party to uh, Merrick Garland, is it mm -hmm. the name? Is it okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and another from two, uh, from five other senators. Uh, uh, that was addressed to Biden, and they kind of contradict themselves. But basically, uh, one if one is accusing us to accusing Argentina to be asking Biden not to give us a loan uh, because we have relations with pariah countries like Iran and Russia mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And the other one is asking uh, Merrick Garland to please intervene uh, in, in, you know, the plane from Venezuela that mm -hmm. is in Argentina? Yes. Um, because otherwise uh, the Argentinians will have to leave. I mean, it's like we are fighting. I mean, some class is fighting, some high class, some opposition is fighting along the U.S. against all these pariah countries and the other mm -hmm. ones are are saying please don't help this country because they are associated associated with these pariah countries and it's it's I don't know <laughs> it's insane it's a little bit insane in in the fact that at the 
No, the kind of innovation, the, there was this project from China that was stopped for like four years. No, not four, but two years at least, because the U.S. Uh, asked for it, apparently, until the ministry was uh, out of his post. Nobody knew, and now it started like with no problems. It's too... Two dams and one nuclear plant, which is really necessary. So, yeah, I mean, there's that too. It's not just military. It's and I think it's not just Argentina, of course. It's probably the rest of the countries as well. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you do raise some some good points. You know, I think. That when we talk about pariah countries, I, I generally think the imperialist countries. And yes, I do emphasize the United States. It tends to be my specialty. It tends to, I know it best. Uh, I, you know, my analysis is that the United States is the uh, uh, um, imperialist superpower. Uh, not that it has superpowers or that it is at all really that super, but it is the hegemon and that, and that, uh, uh, really the other imperialist countries and, and you're completely correct there are many others there's a, a lot of them reside in the west but not primarily in the west but most of them reside in the west whether we're talking about france uk etc i mean in the case of africa right there are 14 west african states that still have their currencies essentially controlled by france so uh, that if that isn't imperialism i don't know what is but uh, you know, I think that, yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a really important point. I think you brought up a really important points, but, um, you know, for me, when it comes to Latin America, right. in this like imperialist, the U S led imperialist Monroe doctrine that's still being imposed there or attempting to be imposed there. You know, it seems like the principal struggle is between those forces that are trying to build integration and independence economically, politically, and militarily, and those forces who are against that. And certainly there are forces internally in Latin America who are certainly aligned with the imperialists who are subverting the interests of broadly Latin America and the Caribbean. But, uh, you know, I, I think for me, imperialism is more about the stage of development so even if there are countries in latin america right like even like a a, a colombia i wouldn't call imperialist colombia is incredibly impoverished it's just so militarized and, and it's mainly militarized by the united states right the so-called israel of latin america and it acts as kind of a military beachhead for the u.s uh, to create chaos in that realm and then, of course, you have the economic sanctions, et cetera. So, so I think that there are, you know, I think that there is kind of a, a definition that, for me, uh, needs to be solid about imperialism. It's like, yes, there are other imperialist countries, uh, but overall, right, these countries are really just representative of a larger system, and that the way that imperialism divides the world is through oppressor and oppressed countries. And even when oppressed countries are going along with imperialism, in my opinion, it doesn't necessarily make them imperialist, if that makes sense. But I'm going to get to Fahim, um, who's been waiting for a little bit. So Fahim, hello. Hi, and Danny. Uh, so, uh, first of all, can you hear me? can hear you. Okay, so first of all, I just can't believe you have to even do an episode on U.S. and Afghanistan and Africa. I mean, how many countries has China bought in? I'm sorry, Fahim, you're cutting out a bit. I don't know if others can feel that, but I, I just don't want it to continue if you're able to correct it any, in any way. Okay, is it better now? Yes. So continue so I can, and I'll, I'll assess. Oh, Fahim is gone. 
Um, if you want to come back into the queue uh, and you're able to uh, in the next few seconds, but if not, I do have a new caller, Marco, that I can bring in. Um, and then Fahim, I can get to you when you're back. So Marco, you're here. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, I just joined the, the, the call, so I don't know if this has been covered already. Um, okay. But what about the connection of the U.S. and the, like, Sackler family and the opioids in Afghanistan and the, like, um, have you done any, any any reporting on that? Are you familiar with some of that? Because, I mean, you know, China's not running drugs in Afghanistan. <laughs> or not. <laughs> well, it's funny because... China, I don't know. Uh, God, I can't stand the U.S. ambassador to uh, to China. Um, Burns, Nicholas Burns, he's such a hawk. I, I mean, and he and he was so infantile and not really, you know, the U.S. hasn't been doing diplomacy with China for how many years? Definitely not since the Biden administration. So, uh, really, he's been <laughs> persona non grata. And then when the Taiwan stuff happens, suddenly, you know, he's talking. He's on CNN whatever, as they try to make it look like they're part of the one China policy. But um, yeah, during that time when China canceled the counter narcotics uh, conversations, uh, coordination, you know, this guy and the, basically the entire, uh, you know, you also had, um, you know, others as well talk about how awful it was that China canceled this uh, uh cooperation around narcotics and it just made me think about this exact question that you're asking and and man i wish i could pull up the article because i I wrote it a long time ago and i think i don't know if you all are familiar with american herald tribune um but i had written about uh i did write about this years ago and uh, and now i really wish i could find the article but i did write about um the opio, you know, the opioid crisis and the Golden Triangle, you know, and Afghanistan's involvement uh, in that, how the U.S. occupation protected the poppy fields and did facilitate uh, this and did help facilitate this huge crisis. Um, I haven't read about the Sacklers, uh, you know, um, in particular, but. You know, of course, <laughs> uh, they're the ones who peddle the uh, the hard stuff, um, the, the 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 professional stuff, while the illicit stuff that arguably was is coming through because of the U.S. military in a lot of uh, you know in a lot of cases, uh, you know that has only helped fuel all of the really really uh, unfortunate consequences uh and it, and you know i always find it so interesting that very few people make this connection right because it i mean it was suppressed this the the, the narcotics right the heroin trafficking all of it was suppressed by the corporate media the u.s military protecting these large poppy fields that you know the taliban wanted to burn maybe maybe not for the reasons we would want to burn them as a, a progressive and radical people but nonetheless the policy um would have been the same but that's that was a huge part of this fight against uh, the taliban was to keep them away from what is a very lucrative trade but we don't hear about it like that we don't hear it's kind of like the 1980s you know uh crack cocaine so-called epidemic uh, when the CIA was literally smuggling this stuff in, right? Freeway Ricky Ross was telling people, hey, you know, I worked with, yeah, I worked with agents, you know, we were smuggling it. And then, you know, um, what's his name who died? The journalist. Oh, God, it's it's completely um, Gary Webb, who was, mm-hmm. uh, who committed suicide, right? Like he was the one who broke okay. that connection. And I think that connection, I haven't seen any good, real connections between directly from the triangle to the heroin industry and all that, but it's, it's there and it's, and it's gotta be there, you know? Um, and so, no, I haven't written about it, but I, I, I know where you're going. I don't know if you have any more information than I do, but I know where you're going with it. And I think, I think it's totally plot, not only plausible, but it's almost like, oh, I mean, it's not the only source of the heroin trafficking, of course, but it is a big one. And I mean, 
come on, this is a $2.3 trillion war. Uh, and the U.S. military was literally protecting these uh, uh, po- the poppy growth in Afghanistan and helping it expand. Why why wouldn't there be a huge connection um, <laughs> between that? Yeah. Like what 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 in what whose interest? I mean, of course, you can, you know, you can poison the population. But uh, 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 as, you know, the opium wars did to China and as has happened many times before in history. But, you know, it definitely also has probably definitely I mean, almost for certain had a huge impact right here in the in the United States definitely <laughs> yeah i grew up in la in the 80s and people used to say how the F- the fbi the feds were selling crack in the hood and people would say oh it's a conspiracy theories you know i like to joke tinfoil hat or fact because it's hard to tell these days yeah uh, and you know my family's mexican as well and you know in mexico we know the governments and the mafia are like intertwined and it's the same in the u.s except people don't think so you know the cia ran drugs in laos and um, you know, Iran Contra. I mean, it's just like the CIA, the FBI. It's like it's just really. It's like I try to get through to people that the United States is more evil than like almost any country I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think when we've as we've entered this kind of like neoliberal, ad, we call it advanced. We could also call it decaying imperial stage of imperialism. Uh, you know these contradictions have only become more acute and and more nefa- I mean more nefarious and, and so what better than a, a a new cold war to try to uh, not only achieve some really incredibly dangerous foreign policy objectives but also to get us thinking that's what was the point of this episode get us thinking that yeah there's something worse than this out there right that there's oh yeah China and Russia they're both doing worse than this um and, and I find that to be absolute i mean it's just nihilism and also it's in part american kind of like narcissism this idea that you know everything revolves around the united states and if the united states is doing really bad really badly and committing all these horrible crimes then others must be committing them just as much and it completely gets the geo the geopolitics the relationships the interconnectedness of this system and how people and nations live under it, um, it completely whitewashes all of that. But Marco, I should let Fahim come back on. So, uh, but that was a really good, um, you know, got me thinking certainly. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. And I love your work. I'm a big fan. Appreciate it. You too. All right, Fahim. Sorry about that. Um, You are back. I think. Take two. How are we? All right. You sound good. Okay, perfect. Uh, That was on uh, my end. So uh, with regards to, uh, first of all, I I can't believe you even have to do this U.S. and Afghanistan versus uh, China in Africa, because uh, how many countries has China bombed in Africa uh, versus uh, U.S. in Afghanistan? So Mm -hmm. that's uh, one uh, thing. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you is, <clears throat> you uh, are you familiar with the uh, uh, War of Independence in 1857 in India or in the it, it, Indo-Pakistan subcontinent? I'm sort of kind of uh, familiar. Not really. So help me out. Well, so basically, uh, that was uh, the War of uh, Independence where the uh, locals, uh, they rebelled against what was the uh, English East India Company. Gotcha, yeah. And so what I was, where I was going with uh, that was how many uh, uh, people in Africa have, how many instances have you heard or come across, or we would have have all heard this, to be honest, uh, of uh, local uh, populations, uh, basically by by grabbing arms against uh, uh, the uh, Chinese uh, uh, or China in Africa. I mean, mm. to date, I haven't heard any anything. So part of me is like, okay, you're talking about imperialism, uh, and all. Uh, I haven't heard a. a 
about people just uh, basically rebelling against uh, Chinese corporations or anything uh, along those uh, lines in any country in Africa. So to me, it's like, okay, what, how do you, uh, uh, not you as in you yourself, uh, Danny, but uh, how uh, does uh, uh, the U.S. define imperialism? Uh, yeah. Or how do folks, uh, they're calling out imperialism uh, and all, and uh, it's been nothing of those uh, sorts. So that is uh, one uh, thing. And then fi finally, I mean, Rudy made a good point of, <clears throat> China uh, coming uh, in and bringing in uh, like, okay, what do you need? If a country X says uh, that, okay, we need bridges or schools uh, and whatever, uh, and China comes with a, a proposal, if, they, uh, if the local country uh, doesn't agree with that, they come with another proposal. It's very different from how the U.S. Uh, practices, what do you uh, need or this is what we're going to give you. Mm -hmm. And with regards to arms, you know, when you look at my uh, moniker or profile uh, thing, my pooch, he, believe it or not, he is a direct product of AFRICOM. He was born and raised outside of Nairobi in uh, Ken Kenya. His uh, breeders and all, wow. even though they have moved to the U.S., they were in East Africa for 13 uh, years, and some of his kennel mates, if you recall, uh, the uh, those uh, posters of uh, Joseph Kony uh, 2012. Mm. Uh, so they were in the Kony um, mission, and I and I've had very serious uh, talks with uh, them, uh, and very open uh, talks with them because over time they became my. Uh, 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 friends, but I was uh, when I would hear uh, some folks talk about uh, like tell me war stories, and I would my hair would ri rise on the back of my head because I'm like, okay, I don't want to hear uh, that. And their wives also would be like, okay, we don't want to hear any of that uh, 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 stuff. Uh, and uh, the only good thing that came out of in their case was when they left Africa, they had like 30 odd uh, dogs where the locals had helped raise them. They said, okay, this is all yours. Uh, you guys can uh, create your own business. Uh, you know how the business is run and you, and you guys are, uh, and uh, uh, this is just a uh, thank you for helping us. But outside of that, I was like, what the heck is the, the u.s doing uh, uh there i mean we're not doing anything productive uh so but that's uh, the the thing but the main thing i wanted to ask you was i mean i haven't heard of any uh, countries or people in any countries uh, just rebelling against uh china so to me i'm like okay mm -hmm. if you want to talk about u.s imperialism or chinese imperialism it's like oh okay, well, just the proof is in the pudding. Uh, so just look at that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you you I mean, bring up a lot of good points, a lot of interesting things to think about. I want to definitely address the two, I think, main parts of what you were asking and mentioning was one, you know, instances of China kind of, you know, bombing other countries and destroying other countries and then instances where local populations where indigenous peoples where uh, oppressed people have risen up against china's uh, uh, presence in their country right so that example of india the rebellion that you brought up i mean very good example right even if it is uh, historic in character but but i think that you know what you're raising is interesting because for me on the definitely with the first instance right in terms of china going to other countries and destroying them and we have zero zero cases of that uh that's uh, i don't really have anything else to say about it <laughs> that's how that's how ridiculous the claims can be in terms of oh china being an imperialist or can china be the next imperialist or will it be a worse imperialist in the united states well uh, we're we're not even getting into the substance of well, uh, we can name seven countries now that the U.S. is bombing, 
but you can't name one that China is, right? You can't name one example of the United States, of what the United States did to Afghanistan. Uh, you can't name one example of China doing the same. So that's an easy one. Now, this one about local populations rebelling has always been interesting because I've had some Pan-African friends, comrades, who have given me, I can't cite them at this moment, but they've said that they've had examples of people protesting, etc. Every time they've shown, every time I remember watching these examples, I've always been a little bit um, hesitant. And here's the reason why. Because one, I haven't seen one example of these protests and opposition being directed at China. And when they have been, I have been suspicious of their character. Like in terms of, you know, for example, um, you know, there have been cases where, uh, you know, um, rebel, or like pro, like so-called opposition, anti-government forces in places like Ethiopia have committed attacks on Chinese infrastructure. I mean, this happened in the Solomon Islands as well. I mean, this is in African countries, but this uh, Solomon Islands is, of course, in the Pacific. But that happened there, too, in 2019. There were massive uprisings, violence in character that did destroy Chinese develop China uh, and Solomon Islands cooperation projects, but it was very directed and it wasn't really directed in the manner of what you would think a real rebellion, right? Why would a rebellion want to destroy public infrastructure, right? Like that, that seems to be counterintuitive. So I've always been suspicious about that. So I do think that when we hear about like local rebellions, if we do hear, first of all, I'm with you. I don't hear about it enough. I, I, I barely can't even cite examples, right? I, I've seen, though, stories from way back in history, right, of targeted attacks on China, China Chinese infrastructure. It's that it, you know, Kazakhstan, this was happening during the 2020, what was that, 2021 uh, uh, color revolution. So I'm always suspicious when China, um, Myanmar, right, state-owned infrastructure and cooperation projects with China were being targeted as well. So when we talk about local, I think it's really important to harness in on the real point that you bring up, which is we don't have an example of a progressive anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movement rising up against China's presence in anywhere let alone the African continent, like we had throughout the 20th century and into today, where you have uh, 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 struggles still against colonialism and neocolonialism. But throughout the 20th century, there were so many reds, you can't even count them, against the the colonizers, right? The Western colonizers, Europe, France, UK, etc. So, so, and that's just the African continent. We're not even talking about elsewhere. And uh, uh, and that's, I think, a really important point to make. Um, you know, the same goes in Asia, Vietnam, Korea, etc. Um, you know, we haven't had those kind of rebellions. We haven't seen those kind of rebellions against China. I think it's a good point. And I think um, the only way that detractors can really seize on that is is for them to have confidence that people don't know their history. So I think I'm going to call it quits for the callers. I know you all stuck around, but uh, we are hitting that over an hour mark now. And before you go, right, I'm just going to say a few things. Um, Please do be sure to subscribe to this podcast, of course. Um, be sure also I've hit 20,000 subscribers on YouTube, the left lens. Uh, please do subscribe to that. You know, you can go to the left lens on YouTube, subscribe there, support that channel. Um, I will be, I'm really excited. I'm hoping that it'll, uh, I'll, it's tentative right now, but it's basically confirmed next Saturday. I will be speaking to John Pilger. So I'm very excited about that. 
And then, of course, you know, I'm only a couple of subscribers away on Patreon um, from 510. And I am, uh, you know, I do um, hope that if you support this work, if you support my columns and my streams, et cetera, that you support me there. Um, and you can find that link in the uh, podcast profile of mine. But with that said, everyone, this has been a very good conversation. Thanks so much to everyone who came out tonight on this Monday night for a Cold War Brew episode. Um, you know, uh, I, I I plan. I've been trying to have guests on this, but I, it's harder to get guests on this even than on like a YouTube channel. I gotta say, um, schedules, right? Managing schedules, my own and others, and. Um, so with that said, I hope that you enjoy this podcast uh, with me and I enjoy, I really do enjoy your participation. So, you know, I know some folks have hesitancies about calling in, you know, I know that it's, uh, it, it can be a, uh, <laughs> it can be a nerve wracking thing, but I do encourage you all to do that um, because, you know, I really do like having discussions with all of you. For those folks who found me here or who on my Telegram, Patreon, Twitter, wherever you have found me, wherever you follow me, uh, I do appreciate the direct conversation. I think it's much more, um, yeah, I think it's much more fruitful and I think we learn a lot. I know I even learn a lot. So with that said, everyone, I am going to go. Take good care. Peace out. And uh, I'll be back again soon with another episode. Bye-bye.